Welcome to Category Visionaries, the show dedicated to exploring exciting visions for the future from the founders who are on the front lines building it. In each episode, we'll speak with a visionary founder who's building a new category or reimagining an existing one. We'll learn about the problem they solve, how their technology works, and unpack their vision for the future. I'm your host, Brett Stapper, CEO of Frontlines Media. Now let's dive right into today's episode. Hey, founders, and thanks for listening. Today, I'm speaking with Anand Kakarni, CEO of Crowdbotics, a rapid application development platform that's raised $58 million in funding. Anand, thanks for having me today. Hey, my pleasure, Brett. Great to be here. Yeah, I'm super excited for our conversation. Let's go ahead and kick off with just a quick summary of who you are and a bit more about your background. Yeah, sure. So my name is Anand Kulkarni, CEO and founder of Crowdbotics. I'm a serial entrepreneur. This is my second time running a venture-backed technology company. Crowdbotics is an AI-powered software development platform, been around for seven years. We help enterprises and founders build software products using artificial intelligence and a universe of reusable components, which we call modules, and we're part of a broader movement called Code Operations. I'm actually technical, despite being the CEO here. I got my start as a research scientist over at UC Berkeley, Ages ago, was an NSF fellow, worked on a lot of computer science stuff, put out a decent amount of peer-reviewed research in the field that is now called human computation, which is a subfield of artificial intelligence. It led to some exciting developments and uh, some cool stuff. So I've been excited to lead the team here at Crowdbotics as we've uh, grown in the last two years. Tell us about your first company, Lead Genius. Yeah, Lead Genius was a spin-out of UC Berkeley. We went through Y Combinator started out as a company called MobileWorks, which was competing with Amazon Mechanical Turk. It was a little early, but at the time, the space that is now dominated by companies like Scale.ai, thought we'd do data annotation at scale. It turned out the niche that became most exciting for our customers and for us was sales and marketing data annotation. And Lead Genius is probably still the best product in the market around for that, still going, still going strong. Was it a hard decision to make to leave Lead Genius and, and go out and start Crowdbotics? Oh, well, you know, I think anytime you jump onto the next thing, it's always a little bit of a uh, tough decision. But I think that for anyone who's been there before, uh, you recognize that there's always the urge to create and launch something new inside you. So I think that that's something that anyone as a founder can uh, appreciate. Given that you've been in AI for so long, and I think it's fair to say you were doing AI before it's cool, what do you make of the market today? And how do you summarize the state of AI? Look, we've been an AI-powered company almost from our inception. We were one of the first commercial users of ChatGPT, excuse me, of GPT-3 on their API. And we actually started the company uh, at Crowdbotics based on what I was seeing happening in the early research space around large language models. These were systems that were things like recurrent neural networks, uh, predecessors of today's LLMs that just look extraordinarily promising. They look like things that could make code uh, or things that looked like they could make things that were almost code. And when I saw this in uh, 2017, 2016, I said, look, this is probably the future. And we got to go out and get ahead of this. So look, the current landscape of enthusiasm around AI is phenomenal. It's a bit of a vindication of our vision. And I think that for companies who are already in this space, of course, we've experienced massive tailwinds from the market driving customers straight into our hands and uh, demanding to use our product. And it's funny because we were working on the same technology in the market two years ago, and people just didn't believe us. 
Yeah, we showed them technology showing that uh, you could use artificial intelligence to plan software, use AI to write code. People said, yeah, well, okay, but can you really? And today, I think the current landscape has really awarded folks who are already in the space with good solutions. There's credibility, there's enthusiasm, and of course, market appetite to buy solutions like this has gone up to a 10, which is great to see. So obviously November of last year was the watershed moment, I would say, for AI, at least just in the, the wider consumer world where everyone started to talk about it and understand it. What about that time period before? So that five years before you know, you're evangelizing this idea, you're trying to push this out into the market. What were those conversations like? And were there ever any like very low points that you experienced where you just thought maybe the market wasn't going to be ready and maybe you were just too early to have a viable business here? Okay, well, this is a great question. So I think that as a founder and as a entrepreneur, you always have to balance the strength of your ultimate vision for the company with the reality that you've got to make sure you've got a product in the market that people want and that people will believe independently of anything else in terms of the popular conception of tech. So, you know, for us, we were fortunate in that many of the first things that we were able to produce and sell to customers were part of our bigger vision, didn't require customers to really believe or understand the bigger picture of artificial intelligence. It just needed them to think about and understand that they needed to have their own software built and to believe that there was a better way possible to build software. So if you look at how Crowdbotics works and the model of code operations in general, we're a little bit different from how most people think about AI-based software development. Um, while we're compatible with tools that do character-by-character -character code generation, we actually take an approach that is modular. So we are snapping together, recommending, selecting big building blocks of code into functional software. We help our customers do that at scale using their own code, and we do this also with our commercial libraries of code. And so that was an easier narrative for a lot of customers to understand because that's the way that most people build software by hand today. Go out and find libraries that you think you'll need, you put those together, and you have running software. And so we didn't need to have people buy that bigger vision as long as they were willing to understand at a different level how the software was able to work. Of course, now that we are seeing popular validation of this concept, of course, uh, things have come together in a nice way. Now, the other side of your question was around were there tough moments? Uh, no question. I don't think any entrepreneur or founding team can say that they have avoided those kinds of tough moments, especially when market sentiment may be going up and down all the time. And I think that we saw a number of moments like that, uh, places where we saw tough customer types or flavors, difficult use cases, people pushing the envelope or the boundaries on things that we couldn't do and having to take difficult decisions on whether we wanted to take a bet on a space and persist in spite of challenges or if we wanted to pivot away from it. And some of those investments really paid off the decision to persevere. I, I can give you an example. Early on in our process, we had the opportunity to work with the U.S. government. This was probably three and a half years into the company. And our first efforts to get anywhere through the U.S. government's procurement process proved to be extraordinarily difficult. We just got rejected over paperwork issues, over not knowing how to sell or engage with buyers inside the U.S. government. And it was extraordinarily demoralizing. We said, hey, we, we should probably just pull out of working with federal sales entirely. Of course, today, the U.S. government is one of our biggest customers. So it turned out to be a good decision to persevere. 
And of course, they've been now some of the biggest proponents of artificial intelligence. And that's been a rewarding shift to see. What advice would you have for other tech founders who want to work with the U.S. government and do business with the U.S. government? It's a great question. So there used to be a conventional mindset in Silicon Valley that government was too hard to work with, too hard to sell into. I think that mindset has now started to shift. I think there's been a surge of interest in and around government tech. I think there's been a number of change makers who have shown up inside positions in the federal government that say, we really need to adopt U.S.-grown technology and U.S.-grown innovation fast to stay competitive and efficient. And I think those change agents, those innovators, those folks who are looking to stay competitive, those are the ones to find and engage with. And I think that piece has been really powerful for us to watch as a cultural shift in how the U.S. government approaches technology. So there's been lots more attention paid now to innovation dollars. There's been lots more attention now paid to engaging in the private sector and with the private sector. I think that one thing that entrepreneurs should be aware of is that when working with the U.S. government, there's always compliance factors to think about security, safety. Those are obviously places where platforms like Crabotics do make a difference, but it's also places where there is a level of rigor that you need to go through to be able to work effectively within the U.S. government ecosystem. But once you've done that, things get a lot simpler. Of course, finding the people who really care to drive change and positive outcomes, those are the, the champions that entrepreneurs really want to empower and, and enable. Did you lose any employees or did you have any employee pushback when you were considering working with the government? And I guess that probably depends what branch of the government you're working in, but I think it was Google or Microsoft. I remember there were a lot of news articles a couple of years ago about people protesting that they were they were doing work with the government, that they didn't want to support the government in that way or have their technology be used in that way. Did you experience anything like that? No, we're a U.S. company, so I don't think that anyone uh, was too concerned about that. I think the concerns that are typically faced inside startups are about whether you can actually survive the length of a buying cycle with a customer that can be as slow as the U.S. government. And that's really the bigger concern that I heard from our team and from our investors. Um, of course, the landscape has shifted. I think these days, there's been a lot of good successes from companies who work with the U.S. government uh, at scale. So that's been um, positive to see. That must have been a big trust and credibility boost, I'm guessing, as well, right? For an enterprise company that's considering using you, if they find out that you are working with the U.S. government, that's a pretty pretty high level of validation that you're able to deliver at a, at a large scale. It certainly did not hurt. So Crowdbotics as a platform for software creation actually has seen its biggest uptake among regulated customers. So think government, finance, health, as well as non-technical ones who are by virtue of changes happening in their industries being forced to become software companies where the importance of their software, the mission criticality of what they're building requires them to act in a way that looks a little bit like a regulated industry. So we've been excited to see strong endorsements from lots of customer types. The U.S. government is one, of course, that meeting their security standards means that we can work in a wide variety of contexts um, that are a little bit less meticulous. But I would also say that if you're a large healthcare chain, if you're a large financial institution, your needs are more or less comparable in terms of the rigor of your process for software creation and the quality of the outputs that you need to see happen. From day one, did you know that this was going to be a big focus going after regulated industries, or did you uncover that later on in the journey? Gosh, that's a great question. So I had no idea. I would never have predicted that. So let me tell you why we ended up going into regulated spaces. It was really because customers pulled us in. 
So Crowdbotics has an approach for software creation that, as I mentioned, it's modular. What that means is that if you were as a customer showing up to build software, you are describing what you're trying to create in natural language. We are identifying based on historical, similar products built by your organization or by your enterprise standards, the different components of code, the modules that we can make use of or that you can make use of to put that application together. Each of those modules has been verified, whitelisted by somebody inside your organization, and it's a full component of code, meaning it's living inside your code repository. It's something that your developers can go in and edit, and it's written in an ordinary programming language, not something proprietary or esoteric. So think JavaScript, Python, .NET, Java, you know, something that you actually want to work with. So what that means is that you're building these systems that have really structured elements of code that have been whitelisted individually, which is a very different way than systems like low-code um, have built software. Because first, you can actually see the entire set of code that you're working with. Second, each of your components has been whitelisted by somebody in your organization at some point in time. And third, you actually have this governing set of standards that you have applied using artificial intelligence across your code base so that you have some ability to scrutinize what has been done. You can also go and look at the code, audit it, modify it, change it, which if you're a CIO or a security officer matters quite a bit in terms of understanding what your software is actually doing and if it is actually going to be secure or insecure. So that is primarily why we have seen such fast adoption inside regulated spaces. That's because the approach just works better if you are building software for high security purposes. But we've also seen lots of customer types, lots and lots of customer types who are not regulated, but who want those same benefits, owning your own IP, being able to edit and modify your code, or just the idea that you can get to market faster using pre-built components. What are your views when it comes to your market category? Is this a category creation play? Is it selling into an existing category in a different and better way? What are your views there? Yeah, great question. So when I started the company, I actually had a, a specific set of reference points that I was looking at that weren't just artificial intelligence because back in 2016, AI was not viewed as something you were going to build a giant category around. Really what I was interested in is the related question of how we could do better than low code. Low code is this category that's been around for 15 years now. It's this idea that you can write less code, empower people who are not developers to go and write the code and make the developer kind of obsolete. And I think that a lot of people, software engineers, people in the valley, enterprise CEOs, CIOs, you know, we just found this notion a little bit off-putting from the get-go that you would actually eliminate developers using low-code, right? Because it's just really hard when you're building systems using these drag-and-drop tools that hide the code or hide the complexity of code to say that we can build something that's going to be scalable, important, mission-critical. As developers, we always know when you're building on systems like that, you hit a limit. You have to go and switch into a software system, a proper programming framework, and go modify something and okay, then you're back to building in a, a real open source framework the way that you normally like to build. So really, we thought about what we could do that was better than low code because look, nothing really important in terms of the software that we all use and drive every day. None of that's been built on low code. It's all been built in full code. And so Crowdbotics takes this approach that's really opening up a new category, code ops, which is the idea that we can use artificial intelligence and historical requirements to change the way that we are building software. 
CodeOps is a little bit like a superset of DevOps or DevSecOps, which were motions that thought about how to empower the developer to be more efficient. CodeOps shifts this entire discussion left. So we are asking, how do you design software using requirements in a way that takes advantage of what's been built before and allows the product side, the business side of the house to work directly with people who are developers and with components of code in a way that accelerates our time to market and lets us make good decisions together about how to build software. So this is really an emerging category. Not everyone calls it the name CodeOps, but that's the term that we see that is really emerging around this. GitHub calls this intersourcing, this idea that you're going to find modules and reuse them. And I think that CodeOps as the category looks like a growing movement that we're excited to try and uh, get into the front of. Did you coin that term or did you see that term being used and say, ah, oh, yep, that's a great way to describe it. We're going to run with that. Oh, gosh, we've seen it kicked around a bit. I think we are probably one of the first and most widely used advocates of the movement, but I don't know that we have uh, coined the term ourselves. That's one of the things that I see founders tend to get wrong when it comes to category creation is they are really obsessed with this idea of if they didn't create the term, then they can't use it for a category creation play. But from studying category creation, what I've seen is a lot of times they do exactly what you're describing, where you essentially watch for a trend that's emerging, no one's really owning it, and then you essentially hijack that term and, and make that your own and then become the leader of the movement and evangelize that louder than anyone else can. So it sounds like you're, uh, you're following that same playbook. Well, good movements exist independently of companies. Good companies exist to empower and enable that movement. So the idea of code reuse is not a new one. It's actually something that when we talk about code reuse to customers or code ops to customers, they all say something like, we have always known code reuse is possible. We want to be more efficient. We don't know how to start in finding which modules of code we can reuse from our own ecosystem while maintaining governance. We don't know how to use artificial intelligence in our software development process to help enable that. And that's a great starting point for our discussions about how to get started with code reuse, how to launch a code ops practice, and how to increase your software development efficiency. 30 to 70% is what our customers typically experience. And so you know, that movement is one that has accelerated now with the advent of tools like Crowdbotics and GitHub Copilot, but it's a movement that is likely going to continue as we see more and more companies thinking about how to incorporate software development practices using artificial intelligence, or just looking inside their own assets to figure out what code is important. This show is brought to you by Frontlines Media, a podcast production studio that helps B2B founders launch, manage, and grow their own podcast. Now, if you're a founder, you may be thinking, I don't have time to host a podcast. I've got a company to build. Well, that's exactly what we built our service to do. You show up and host, and we handle literally everything else. To set up a call to discuss launching your own podcast, visit frontlines.io slash podcast. Now, back to today's episode. Some of the companies I've talked to who are doing a category creation play, they say they essentially have two different marketing plans. They have the movement marketing plan, which is you know pushing the movement forward, and then the, the product marketing plan. Do you have something similar? Is it two separate plans where you're independently trying to market the movement separate from the product, or is that all under one plan? Well, I think we are looking for people who are like-minded, people who are, we'll call them co-champions in the movement with us. Whether or not they talk about code operations under the name CodeOps, or if they call it something else, those are tools that we seek to partner with and to enable. So GitHub is one example. Crowdbotics has been built around GitHub actually since its inception. Now we support GitLab as well, because that's one of the places that when we're talking about building, storing, and reusing modules of code, 
you're going to be looking inside those repositories from day one. And so we were excited to see that GitHub has been thinking about intersourcing for a long time, and we're excited to see places that we can continue to align with folks like that who are looking at this element and, and these questions of reuse. And so similarly, we look closely at what folks are doing around efficiency measurements inside development. Uh, we look closely, of course, at the wide range of emerging tools around point problems in AI with software development, things like, can you auto-generate test cases? Or can you auto-generate, let's say, front-end React components? Because those are likewise kindred spirits in the movement of code operations, tools that we want to enable our customers to have access to uh, or have the ability to team up with, which is a great place to go. You share any numbers in terms of growth? Yeah. So Crowdbotics has had a great run. We actually, for the last three years, have doubled or tripled uh, top line revenue every year. So 200 to 300% growth. And you know, a lot of that growth has been lately in the backs of large customers building mission critical software systems on uh, top of the stack. Some of these customers are building really enormous large scale products, things around instrumented hardware, connecting fleets measuring large-scale data across their entire organization, standing up large mission-critical e-commerce, retail, or health systems. Also some really innovative stuff around machine learning applications people have built to do things directly in the end-user environment. We've even seen venture-backed tech companies built on top of Crowdbotics, which is exciting to see as well. Folks who have, in some cases, raised much more than we have on the products that they created first on Crowdbotics. So those are phenomenal stories. And I think we're going to try to maintain this pace if we can. Depends on if we are able to continue serving the needs of this movement that's emerging as effectively has been so far. We talked a little bit earlier about, I'm sure, the the positive benefits that came from ChatGPT and everything that happened last November. I would guess that one of the downsides is there's a lot more competition and there's a lot of noise in this space. And there's a lot of companies that are really battling and fighting for demand. What are you doing to rise above all of that noise and make sure that you capture all of that demand that's out there? Yeah, this is a fun question, right? So look, solutions that are in the market today or that have jumped into the market lately often think about a very narrow approach to software creation using artificial intelligence. And what I mean by that is they are often doing things that are at their core, simple ways to try and accelerate the literal creation of code on a character by character basis, just by putting a thin wrapper around tools like GPT-4 or Llama 2. And while that is something you can stand up very quickly, you can build a lot of products that are just wrappers around GPT or your favorite LLM in a weekend, those are not places where you can create durable value since there is essentially no barrier to entry. And since users can just go directly into ChatGPT if they want to and do the same thing or you know, happen to get up Copilot and do the same thing to generate code. So to generate durable value here, you've got to have an approach that actually creates systemic value for the customer by doing something that is more than just what those tools are doing. And that's been the approach we have taken for a very long time. So Crowdbotics, of course, we're not focused on the raw individual character by character code generation. We are focused on creating an ecosystem of requirements and components that are unique for a given organization and allowing them to scale up by snapping those components together. That synthesizes data from inside an organization's own repos, their own 
backlogs and JIRA instances, and also takes organizations forward through governance of those applications at scale. And so really, we don't look at the noise of these small, fast, sort of flash in the pan point startups that people are building around very specific elements in the software creation journey. What we think about is how do we generate the most value for customers holistically by allowing them to manage their use of tools like that at scale. And that's really where the durable value is. So yeah, it's interesting because an important takeaway for entrepreneurs who have not been through cycles like this before is you've got to build a company that's going to be relevant over 10 years, not over the six months or 12 months that there is a dynamic hype cycle around language models. And I think you're going to see that out of the current wave of enthusiastic startups that are trying to form around problems in and around the product development lifecycle, there's going to be a small number that end up becoming durable, scalable companies. And then there's going to be lots of people who are you know, maybe jumping into this thing too fast and haven't really thought about the dynamic defensible value that they can create for customers. So look, this is also a, a trend that I think, unlike some of the previous transformative revolutions in tech, kind of privileges people who are already playing in the space. There's advantages for incumbents that, at least for companies like ours, let us take a head start into this ecosystem. So that's been a good place for us to be. As I mentioned there in the intro, you've raised 58 million to date. What have you learned about fundraising throughout this journey? Oh, gosh, so much. Look, I've raised now for two companies, and I think that I've raised in up markets, I've raised in down markets. The fundamentals of how and when to fundraise remain constant, even if the specific environments, themes, and appetite from investors shift. For me, it's always been around focusing on the company's fundamentals. So I know some founders love to raise on hype. They love to raise on what is hot. They do really well when things are booming. You know, if you're a crypto founder raising in 2021, let's say, or if you're uh, dating myself, on-demand delivery application in uh, 2011, right? You can ride some waves. But my approach has always been about the fundamentals of the company, right? Do you have a giant market that you were serving with disruptive, best-in-class, competitive product that's going to create meaningful, large-scale value for customers in the biggest possible segment of the market with a great team of leaders in and around your management team? And when you have those fundamentals, you can raise in an up market or a down market independently of almost any conditions. That also delivers the best outcomes for your end investors and your customers who want to see a durable, stable, and uh, scalable technology organization being created. I don't know that there are other approaches to creating durable companies at scale, at least not the way that I have built companies. I think you've got to have the basics right. Super strong product vision, great set of customers, and really defined outcomes as opposed to a lot of hope. So the other piece I'll say is that fundraising is also about being systematic. Early founders who I advise sometimes underestimate exactly how much work is required to run a systematic fundraising process. You are talking to no less than 30, maybe more like 50 different groups to run a truly competitive process, especially early in your cycles. Of course, later on, you can be a little bit more measured since your company grows on its own momentum and you get some choice, but it's great to create the expectation that, you know, fundraising, it's only presented in the news as a done deal, but the reality is you are really pushing systematically for, you know, three, sometimes six months to 
build and generate consistent outcomes and uh, competitive end states. And it's important to approach it with that kind of seriousness. Based on everything that you've learned so far with this company and your previous company, what's the number one go-to-market piece of advice that you'd have for a founder? Great question. Gosh, go-to-market is so important. And I see that first-time founders, sometimes second-time founders, just defer the decision to think about and plan for GTM until very late in the game. So the faster you figure out your GTM, the better your company will be and the easier the outcomes will look like. So come up with a plan and a hypothesis, relentlessly test that hypothesis repeatedly and continuously identify new channels, expansion opportunities, and opportunities to scale your GTM. GTM is actually one of the places where if you get it right, almost everything else follows naturally because your company will be a business that is scaling and working well. So those are good places for us to continue to help educate founders. I think there's only so many different strategies that work, you know, direct sales, channel sales, low touch sales, advertising, referral, you know, viral distribution. So understanding what those are, scaling those, those are the, really the purpose of a company in the early rounds. And then as you get later in the process, you have to make sure that you are continuing to expand and multiply on those, all of which are good places to go. So. There's a little bit of a context on uh, how I think about GTM. Super useful. Now, final question for you. Let's zoom out three to five years into the future. What's the big picture vision that you're building? Okay, Crowdbotics is a new way to create software. We are looking to challenge how people have historically built. CodeOps is a movement that is taking the world by storm. People are realizing there are better ways to build software. People are shifting left in their thinking about how and when to think about the code part of their software products and initiatives, and business units want to play faster and more competitively in the product creation discussion. So we are looking to create the next billion applications, mission-critical, meaningful, large-scale applications on Crowdbotics. We're looking to help enterprises understand this way of building software. Also, smaller creators who want to build the next category of creating software, want them to show up and build on and we're excited to partner with teams and organizations, with CIOs and executives who are looking to bring software to market faster, to introduce AI into their software development lifecycle, and to be the product that people use to do that. So that's a big vision. Uh, we have a large scale group of applications we want to see built onto the tools, and uh, we're excited to see those go forward. Amazing. Well, I love the vision and I really love this conversation. It's been a lot of fun and I know it's going to be a big hit with our audience. Before we wrap up here, if there's any founders that are listening in, they just want to follow along with your journey as you build and execute, where should they go? Best place is crowdbotics.com. If you sign up right there, you can follow along with the story, get onto our email list, and even show up and plan an application using our tools. We'd be excited to uh, help support you. And that's the best place to go to follow along crowdbotics.com. I love it. All right. Thanks again. Really appreciate it. Hey, likewise. All right. Thanks a bunch. Yeah. Keep in touch. This episode of Category Visionaries is brought to you by Frontlines Media, Silicon Valley's leading podcast production studio. If you're a B2B founder looking for help launching and growing your own podcast, visit frontlines.io slash podcast. And for the latest episode, search for Category Visionaries on your podcast platform of choice. Thanks for listening and we'll catch you on the next episode. 